welcome to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters have been doing this for way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by Tony. You can't always get what you want. No, you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. Oh, yeah. You get what you need, do you? Maybe. You don't Maybe. always get what you want when your players are bringing <laughs> builds to you. How about that? There it is. There's your segue. There you go. That is, those are the dulcet tones of Dave, the rock and roll DM, our third of the three wise DMs here. And today that segues perfectly into what we're talking about because we are talking about player character builds that piss the DM off. You know, we've all got our bugaboos. We've all got the ones that get under our skin. We have a question here. We'll get to it in a minute from a listener that talks about something that can be very frustrating. However, on the other hand, I think we all got to realize and we all do try to realize that we are playing with players who are building things they want to do and want to have fun too. And we're trying to balance, how do you balance that with making sure the other players get to have fun with making sure you get to have fun. And generally, how do you deal with builds that piss you off? So today we are starting with a question from a listener. We don't have a name from this listener. They sent it in through the what's your problem field on our website. And if you're listening and you would like to hear us talk about something on the episode, please go to our website, threewisedms.com. You can go in and enter your problem in our what's your problem field, or you can send them to us at threewisedms at gmail.com or talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So today, so what kicks off this episode, what, what, what got us thinking about this today is this message we got through the website, subject extreme passives. What are your recommendations about dealing with a player that specifically built their character so that their passive perception is 19 and their passive investigation is 22? When asked to make a perception check, the player says that they would just like to take their passive. And they've even noted that they feel like they shouldn't have to ask to look for any secrets that are below a 22 or 19, that anything that's below their passive number should just be included in the description of the area they enter. To me, this is a bit of a game ruiner. So, um, guys, you know, we've all taken a look at this, and I would say one of the things that jumps out at me about this is passive perception we use all the time. Passive investigation is only barely mentioned in the player's handbook. It yeah. is not a thing as far as I'm concerned. I still, I still think it's, it's, it, that takes a pretty heavy read uh, and some liberal um, interpretation to think that all skills are just passive in that, in that same way. Well, they're not. I mean, really. Yeah. I, it's real. I mean, it's really not. Especially so, something like investigation. Even if you notice something, it doesn't mean that all the mysteries of what you've noticed are spelled out before you. So, okay, you find a smudge on the desk. But what does that mean? I don't know. Get figuring. <laughs> and really quick, too, just as, a, as an aside, because the first thing I saw when I read this email, when you sent it over to us, was Sherlock Holmes. I said, this guy built Sherlock Holmes. And that sounds awesome because as we were saying in our precast hubbub that we do, our powwow, uh, I was saying in the Pathfinder, one of my Pathfinder games, I had built a character that was like Sherlock Holmes and the skill system in that kind of allowed me to really play with that. And that's kind of awesome. My point to all that is that's really cool as a character concept, but you're still playing with a lot of other players at the table, 
And no one wants to be John Watson. I don't think anybody <laughs> has built John Watson. And that's what makes Sherlock Holmes awesome is that John Watson tells you about how brilliant he is. But I don't think any of your friends want to just sit around and tell you how brilliant you were in the in the game every game. So. It's like an episode of Doctor Who. Doctor, it, it's very <laughs> much. Like, I don't want. I want to be the companion. Like Dave, me, the actual human, wants to be the companion, right? If the TARDIS shows up, but I don't want to be the companion in the game, like the Doctor Who role playing game. Like that would suck. <laughs> See, I just thought you meant that you didn't want to be a, a, a badass army medic doctor. I don't know. Isn't that like well, no, every, that's cool every, too, but every support class? He's literally never that in any of the stories, though. Like, he never yeah. gets to use his awesome, you know, uh, doctoring Afghanistan war vet knowledge, you know? So, and you bring up one of the problems that can come up in a situation like this. And I think, you know, so, you know, we present this as builds that piss you off. And I think because as a DM, there, there do come times where you run into someone who has a build that just, for whatever reason, prevents you from doing something you expect that you were going to be able to do as a DM, right? Yeah. So this is a build that comes in and he says, well, I should get all the passives because I've got a passive perception of 19. I got a passive investigation of 22. I expect for you to just hand all those things to me. And there is, I think, there's a spectrum here, right? In some ways, I'm of two minds of this character. And in case you're wondering, we were doing the math on this, how do you get here coming in? And the answer is probably the observant feat. The observant feat gives you a plus five to your passive wisdom and passive intelligence checks, which counts for perception and investigation. So you take varying human, you get a 20 in intelligence, you get an 18 in your wisdom, you get observant and boom, uh, and, and you're proficient in investigation, boom, you're right there. So it doesn't take a lot to get here, even at level one. And at level one, passive 19 is going to get you everything. Mm. So I do feel like there's two sides to this. On the one hand, we, we're coming in to run a game and the players are coming in to run these characters they built. And the players made choices to build a certain kind of character that they wanted to play and they wanted to benefit from. And I think as DMs, we have to respect that. Like, so on the point of view of the passive perception, I probably would give him anything you can notice, you know, because perception is passive. So, you know, we, we use the example in our pre-chat of perception is noticing there's fingerprints in the banister. Investigation is breaking out the fingerprint kit and actually taking the fingerprints and figuring out who who touched the banister. Like perception can be passive. You walk by, you notice it. Investigation is a pretty active thing. But on the things that are passive, yeah, he spent the money. He should get that bonus the same way the fighter who who got a really high combat bonus should get their bonus. You know, they should get the bonuses they paid for in character creation. On the other hand, the player doesn't get to dictate how you run your game. And while passive perception is pretty cut and dry, yeah, you, if you pass perception is how you notice hidden things from hidden doors to hidden characters. Passive investigation is, I guess, an option the DM can apply. But really, I've never used passive investigation before. You want to investigate something, you're breaking out your dice and you're rolling something. Maybe you make it automatically, but you've got to think to do it. I double checked on this today, too, and Jeremy Crawford has even weighed in. The idea of passive perception being on the character sheet is really for the DM to speed up the game so that they don't have to constantly ask for checks in a way that makes the character, because the minute you ask for a check, the character is thinking, I should notice something, and if I roll like shit, I know something's there, meta level, but now <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to play like I don't know. Passive perception is meant to allow the DM the ability to run certain things behind the screen 
to then roll out to the players. And I did this several times, Tony, with your character, Hawk, who as a barbarian has an exceptionally high uh, passive perception. I think you're close to, I, you might be 19, actually. He's a, he's, he's a Conan barbarian. He's not just strong. He notices shit. I have that wisdom resilience. I'll do you one better. I was in a campaign where I had a character who figured all this stuff out without using any checks at all. So I'd run a mystery and this guy would show up who I dubbed Sherlock Holmes. I talked about this guy like 30 episodes ago (laughs) and we'd be three and a half minutes into this murder mystery. You know, you're in that stormy castle and it got everybody together. And he's like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. It was the aunt. She murdered the twins. And it was like, <laughs> and he would pull off her mask. And it, it was the aunt. And I'm like, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah, screw your investigation or perception check. You just have your meta check. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's one of the truths of the game is we're playing with the players who are in the game. And that is one of the big things I think sometimes that's hardest to kind of adapt to as as DMs. It's certainly something we've talked about a million times from a million different angles. You're in a cooperative game with other players who you're trying to have a good time with. And you need to both execute what you want to do because that's what you came to do. I mean, you came to tell your story your way and you want to run the game you want to run. But you also need to make room for the way the characters want to play their characters and how they want them to work up to an extent where you start getting what sounds like a character who's a little too pushy about it, a player who's a little too pushy about it, as far as wanting passive investigation checks to be to be automatic and things like that. Of course, we don't know the whole story here. We're not in this group, so we don't know exactly how this actually plays out. But clearly, you know, to go back to our title, clearly this DM is pissed off about this character build. Yeah. And also, I, it comes down to a point as well. Like, they're the one of the funnest things about this this game and any role-playing game that's involving dice is that ability for chance to change the story, to change how things happen. That's why we like to roll dice for things. That's why people, I think, like rolling out their stats a lot of times and not necessarily point by is fun, but I like rolling dice, right? So in the same way, this idea that I'm always on my A game my, like my character, like it's a fantasy and you want to play your fantastical heroic character, but you're always on your A game. You're always at a 22 all the time. Like you never brain fart. You never go, oh man, I'm tired. We just had a battle. Uh, we're being chased by a pack of ravenous wolves and you're still completely cool, calm, collected. And yep, I notice all things all the time. It takes like, what's the point of even having the skills? Let's just say you notice everything and you lift everything and you can shoot everything with your bow and don't even worry about dice at that point. I mean, so your point is basically that, you know, you can't demand these things be interpreted past. Not even close, nor can you demand that the idea that because I'm going to guess from the read of the full letter is that this person is expecting to walk into a room in the castle, in the dungeon and to see every secret door, to see every trap door, to see every gold coin that's possible in there, to see every wherever the MacGuffin is, regardless of where it's hidden in the room. You're just going to see all of that because, well, with a 22, you would in essence beat any any DC that's going to be really thrown at you unless you're, you know, walking through God's home or something, right? Well, I mean, I'd even argue with the passive perception, technically, you do see almost all those things. To I a think, point. 
To a point, but like if something is behind something, like I'm thinking Strahd's, uh, the Strahd dinner, mm. right? There is a secret door behind the organ that you can find if you go investigate the organ, if you go and look at the organ. If you just walk in this room, even Sherlock Holmes is not going to be like, hey, there's a secret door there immediately from across the room. You might have to go past it. Your eyes might have to hit on it. You might need to something would need to happen. And then that is a point where you can then ask for a check or give it to them because they have such a high thing. But allow the DM, the the fiat to build the narrative into that, you know, in general, in D&D, when you have a secret door or something, it's usually they need a they need a they need a perception of X of so much to spot it. And yeah. then they spot the scratches on the ground or they spot or they notice the, the 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 breeze of air coming through it. So one way you could play that and how this player expects it to be played is when I walk into a room, I want to notice every secret thing in that room because I've gotten my passive perception high enough where I should do that. But you're saying basically they still need to go around the room and look at the things. They don't just he sh- even then he shouldn't just get it outright. I don't think so. What the hell is the fun? Of- That's not going to be fun three games in, even for the for that player. Because getting a, getting every toy you ever wanted is only fun for so long. Uh, back to Dave's earlier point about doing things behind the DM screen, which I think really ties into this well. And I've made this botch myself like a million times over my career is when you're saying, for example, you're using insight or you're trying to sense motive and you're talking to someone and they roll like a one and you're like, ha, 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 you find that guy completely believable. Well, now everybody knows this guy's full of shit. Mm. Yeah. Right there. Just like back to your point where it's like, well, geez, make a perception check. Oh, I rolled a three. Okay. You don't notice anything. Oh shit. I just walked past, you know, the, the pouch exactly. of clues. Exactly. I mean, in the past, we used to handle that a couple ways. One was you would just roll for them behind the screen. And then if they noticed it or not, and if they didn't, they never knew. They were none the wiser than this, and you were rolling dice. Two is you ask for red herring checks. You know, yeah. I used to do that yeah. a lot. Just say, someone make me a perception check. Just note what they rolled and just move on. You know, so you would do things to try to muddy the water, but it still comes down to when you ask someone for a perception check and they roll a three, they know they missed it. Yeah, you know? and when you, when you look at Crawford's response in his Sage Advice column about this, it's literally for that reason. He the, the idea of passive perception, and they put it on the sheet now in 5e, was shorthand. It was a way to have a number that I, and I literally have, for my players, I'll have their AC and their passive perception on a sheet behind my screen somewhere for all of them. So I just, when I'm rolling to hit, I can, I don't have to say, does this hit? I can just look, you know, even though sometimes it still gets muddied up. And with the passive perception, I can see what it is and that can let me gauge what information I'm reeling out to them, which I did multiple times with Hawk and Rose, who both had very, very high passive perceptions. I allowed them to see things, notice things that the other characters would not just randomly. Yeah. I mean, it's a fine line because even I I don't mind the idea that he comes into the room and maybe you mention, oh, you come into this room and you notice the scratches by the piano or whatever. Mm. But there is a line of sight issue there because, I mean, you actually make a really great point thinking about that straw dining room. When you walk in the door, you don't necessarily notice the scratches. I mean, like you wouldn't see them. Strahd's sitting at the head of the table. You got a big dining room between you and him. 
you don't necessarily have line of sight on that secret unless you jump on the table or walk around the room. Yeah. So that like, I mean, so that does, that is a good argument too, for even why, even with a super high passive perception, you still got to go to the space to notice the thing. You don't necessarily notice everything when you just kind of glance through the door. You know, yeah. You're, there you're are times, do it. I think it's similar to when we talk about, there are times that do you want them to have to go through every single drawer to find every last bit of treasure in that room or things to find? Or sometimes there's the, okay, here's the things you're going to find. Boom, boom, boom. And it kind of depends on multiple things, depending on what's happening in the session at that time. But that is still the person who's running the game's decision on how to play that. You absolutely should play to this character who wants to be Sherlock Holmes. I think it's an awesome character concept. I would love to play it. But I would, as a player, attempt to play it in a way that was equitable and more fun for everyone at the table in the sense that even Sherlock Holmes was not always on. You know, he had massive flaws that affected how he was necessarily reading that information or being involved in it. You know, for me, it's a little... I feel I'm of two minds on that argument. I, I see what you're saying, but I also feel like if I built the character to do the thing, I want to do the thing, <laughs> you know? Like, is it fun? Well, it's fun for me because I built this character to do this thing. So... Yeah, that's fun for me. That's what I intended it to do. And if it doesn't do that, we're not playing the character I built. No, so then I feel like I'm kind of then I feel like as a player, I'm kind but of robbed of what I spent my money on. You know? Yeah. And we're in between the actual issue, which is the actual issue is that the person is attempting to find loopholes in the rules that aren't really there in that way. Well, that's one of the issues. I don't agree that's the actual issue because what's what this guy's saying right off the bat, what are your recommendations about dealing with a player that specifically built their character so their passive perception is 19 and their passive in, in, investigation is 22? This DM does feel like that's a cheat. Like that's not the rules exploit point, which I think we all agree. The rules, the, the player is trying to exploit the rules and mm-hmm. there you got to stomp down a little bit as a DM. This listener's question though is like they specifically made sure their passive perception investigation was so high I could never hide anything. I read that as the DM feeling a little bit like the player basically cheated them of the ability to keep secrets. Uh-huh. But if you built, if the player built their character that way, I think to some extent you have to respect that because otherwise you're not playing with them. Uh-huh. You know, they have a right to kind of say, I'm building my character to do these things, but I'm giving up these other things I won't be able to do. Right. This player, this character probably can't heal. Or maybe, I don't know, depends on what class they are. Or so you I think, a lot of chins ups, you know? <laughs> so I think there is that, that, like, I think you want to deliver on what they want to do. Even in the game, I do think you change the game for it. Like, I think it changes the game. I think it does make your game, your secrets are coming out. This is going to be a feature of your game. And you, I would probably lean into that a little bit as far as, okay, you're noticing all the secrets because of this guy. And you guys, all the other players have other cool things they're doing. Okay. You know, I'm going to let some of that go and I'm going to hold on to the investigations because you got to actively investigate. But still, when you investigate, plus 12 says you're probably making all of my first level investigation. (laughs) You know? So honestly, how I'd probably handle this is first, you got to lay out how these things are operate in your games as Dave is kind of alluding to uh, when I say I search does that mean I padded down every single dead body from this 25 minute you know slugfest we're in went through every drawer I'm knocking on the floor trying to feel some things or is it like I pause the game and I'm just using my camera to look all around the room while the action's on pause looking for something that looks sketchy If the characters had a low passive, I would let them still find that secret door behind the organ. But perhaps to that that person with a 19, perhaps there's some residue from the time the organ was moved 
a slight scratch that catches their eye. Something like that that warrants them. That, but they have to be in proximity. I agree with that. If you're not, you just don't walk into the room and go, aha, 35 feet away, but under that rug is a trap door. Wow, Superman, your x-ray vision is killing it. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think that was a great, and, and that's why, like Dave, like I said, when you made the point about the Strahd's dinner, that is a great point, because I can remember that room map. You don't have line of sight. Like, you wouldn't see it from when you, when you just walk in the room. You would need to get over there. Mm. Here's the thing that's tricky, though. This player has built this character to be super observant and super investigative. If you adjust the game difficulty so that they're noticing all the things where if, if no one had done this. So if you basically like telling you kind of just implied, right? So if your party all had lower passives, you'd probably still have them find the door. Because this guy has super high passives, he finds the door more easily, but you still find the door. If this guy has built this character this way and they don't recognize things that you wouldn't normally recognize in a campaign, it's not going to feel special. I think you almost need to throw in some stuff to play into this a little bit to make it worthwhile. Because otherwise, I mean, if you build a super investigative character, you sh it should feel different than the other campaign you played where you didn't. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree with that. Sure. Absolutely. And I would play with it. And I'm not saying I wouldn't play with it. Yeah. I would just uh, – the first thing that jumped out at me is that that's not really – for me, at my table and my read of the rules, how those things are meant to be utilized. Yeah. Doesn't mean that you are not super extra observant that you're Sherlock Holmes. I want to play with that now because that's going to be fun. Maybe this is a mystery now. Maybe there's more mysterious things involved. Who knows? But it's like when we have the familiars in the game, right? Like Patty, for instance, you're, yeah. you're infamiliar. Or when I had Roderick had Poe, his owl. Raven. He kind of swapped them out at times. Uh, I wanted that flyby attack without the uh, without the opportunity attack that the owl gave you. So you see a perfect example. With the <laughs> there's a perfect example. I was using the owl. I changed him into an owl because um, I wanted that you know that flyby effect uh, instead. So I was playing with the mechanics too. But that changes how the map plays, how exploration plays when you have familiars and stuff. It doesn't mean you don't let people use them as Patty has been used, right? Oh, my God, every single session. But you start to put obstacles in the way, too, to create. So it's so it creates some level of challenge. It creates some level of interest in the game. So it's not like Tony always says, just on easy mode, because I don't care who you are. That will get boring after a while. Well, and that's true, and I think that's a great way to deal with it, because what you did with Patty was, first of all, we established, yeah, he just opens up the whole map. He's invisible, he's flying around. If there's I no obstacles... And whenever I could, whenever I could, I attempted to find him and kill him. And that was it. Later on, <laughs> later on, including... I only want to kill him I only want to kill him when he's in the initiative tracker. <laughs> you just want fewer initiatives. Yes, I do. But I mean, so what you did, though, was we we did get to the point where, like, yeah, Patty sees it all, because he's going to fly around, he's invisible, he's got a good stealth, and he's going to he's going to open up the whole map, and I've got direct eyesight with him, like, I can see through his eyes, so, okay. Unless you unless you block it off, he's going to open up the whole map. All right, we did that plenty of times. But then he started throwing in, okay, but this door's closed. You can't open that door. All right, you yeah. can't open that part of them. You know, you find ways within the continuity and within the rules that cancel out the special ability when you don't want to open up everything. Yeah. You know, and, and then you'll, a great way to do it. You're going to have those assassins or something that are coming after your party that their stealth is going to crush your puny little 22 uh, investigation or 19 perception, right? And then that's going to make you tighten your butthole a little bit as that character going, 
whoa, whoa, why did I not see this? You know, I'm, is this my Moriarty? You know, that, that's the tricky thing, though, because if you do that now, if you just up all your stealth on the on the bad guys so people can stealth past them. Not all, no, 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 not all the time. Just just one or two. Not all the time. But there are going to be times where something comes in and, OK, the stakes have now changed, you know, and you couldn't necessarily play with that in the same way with a party without this person in it, too. So there are benefits to it, I think, as well for the game. Yeah, I would probably I don't know that I would necessarily try to trump the perception and the investigation because he spent his money on it. You know, if there's something super stealthy, that's a different story. But what I would probably do is be like, yeah, that doesn't solve every problem. Right. OK, yeah. You notice that the, you notice that piano moves. You go over and you move the piano and instead of the door opening, something falls on your head. Why didn't you notice that? You didn't investigate, you know, or there's something else or this leads you into a room where there's a bigger problem that you weren't aware of or just physical damage because that guy doesn't sound like he's going to be super beefy you know you've already put your 20 in intelligence and your 18 in wisdom yeah. i don't think I'm he's a barbarian I don't yeah think i don't know how barbarian. much is left over well tony had ridiculous roles in that game too i remember i was there when he rolled it that's some good stuff but uh i mean in all realism if you had an area rug on the floor of the dungeon and underneath there was a trap door your perception hmm there's a slight indentation in the rug it, it's that's trickier should they get to play with those things? Absolutely. Can the guy still? Can the guy with the low perception still find that? Yes. Should the person, the higher one, have a better chance? Yes. But let's stand on its head. Hawk ran across things he couldn't lift. I didn't make every athletics check. There was times. I mean, it, he's truly built for athletics. Like that is absolutely his thing because he's the bear totem. He is the. He's, he counts as a size larger than himself. All this preposterous nonsense. He read Schwarzenegger's book. He is beyond a 20 strength. <laughs> yeah, sometimes... if, we're, if we're discussing builds that piss DMs off, the bear totem is a good one. <laughs> but Dave's we'll like, get hey, to that in a minute. Yeah. yeah. Think, Dave's yeah. like, hey, dummy, that rock's like 60 tons. No, you can't lift it. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Can I roll it? Can I at least make it roll? So I guess, you know, this all brings us, I think, to the crux of this question, though. So what do you do with the player? Like, how do you make this okay? How do you real rein them in, but still make it fun for them? Well, they're the first person that's going to notice the potential clue. If there's a clue in the room, there's something to be noticed. It's theirs. But as I touched on earlier, it doesn't mean that they've, they've figured it out. They can, they can get all the pieces of the puzzle together. They have to assemble it. Would I just make it like, well, you know, the guy with a 10 passive could do what you can? No, I agree. That's not fair. They they did. They, they bought the ticket to the ride. They should get to ride it. But you know what? If you watch these detective shows, these guys do the legwork. They start going <laughs> out the carpet looking behind there. It's like, aha, look at these scratches. What is this? Is powder down here? Is this an acid burn? Where is this from? Hmm. Then he looks at the ceiling. It's like, aha, it dripped into the ceiling, you know. Yeah. yeah. It's, tangent. it's how it's just make it part of the role play and make it part of the narrative and part of the gameplay. So it's the, like Tony said before, and we've talked about, it's the, what are you doing? So it, there's nothing fun for me as a, running the game or playing the game. I walk in a room and you then like, let's say we're on roll 20 and you just send over in the chat, the list of all the things we find. What, why are we bothering with role playing? Why are we bothering with, Going into this dungeon, how about I just like I put my hand out, I mutter some words and I just you tell me everything that's in there. I, like that's not that won't that's not going to be enjoyable or fun. So play into that character. If you're playing the Sherlock Holmes type character, play into that. 
What exactly are they doing? How are they looking for things? What do they want to look for? What types of things are they obsessed over? What types of things do they want to find out? Make it part of the gameplay. Make them role play it to a point. Tell me what you're doing, not just give me a list of all the things I just found. I agree with that wholeheartedly. You've bought this ticket to make this character. Well, you know, as my strength character is like ripping off a shirt, you're an intelligence character. You know, use your brain to solve problems. And I know it was like, I just roll to solve the problems with my brain. No, I really want you to think about it. Put it together with why, why and how and where. And you get some clues and maybe that makes it easier because I realize your character is not you and you don't have an 188 IQ in real life, most likely. But that is your way of handling problems. The thinking versus the physical versus the bard who persuades and builds alliances or, or the thief, you don't even realize they were never there in the first place. But that is your that is your thing. Lean into that. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, from me, it's just, you know, number one, you do have to take control of this whole expectation issue because there are some out of whack expectations as far as what passive actually is. Take control of that. Set your rules. You let them know, look, investigation is probably never passive unless I want it to be. You're going to have to actively investigate things and make roles. And frankly, the player doesn't have a say in that because the DM gets to decide what requires a passive investigation. And I've honestly never had it come up. Absolutely. On the perception side, set your ground rules. You're like, okay, what can you see when you walk into a room? Well, it's going to depend on how well you get around. Line of sight matters. You know, what can you hear? What can you smell? These things might influence that. But if they get there and their passive is over the number, absolutely give it to them because they have given up other benefits to get this benefit. And you got to keep that in mind. You have to let them get the rewards that they built this character to get and play them up, you know? So that's going to make them happier and more amenable when you tell them, hey, you didn't spot this thing, you know, when they can see that they are, because they should see that, yes, I am this super perceptive character. I am getting stuff I would not have gotten. I'm seeing stuff, noticing stuff, putting stuff together that I wouldn't have without those stats because I made that investment. That's that's how I built the character and that should pay off for them. But other than that, you know, I think as a DM, you want to take your power back and just set the ground rules. Okay, you know, here's what you can see passively and how that works in my game. And investigation, you got to tell me what you investigate. That's how I would do it. Almost always, you know, because investigate to me, investigation really is the, you know, that's when you're bringing in the flesh eating beetles to excarnate the skeleton to see what the damage was done to the bones. That's the investigation part. It's the legwork. So you got to tell me what legwork you're doing. And if you're working, you know, flesh eating beetles into your game, let us know. That sounds fun. Right. Yeah. Because if you remember a lot of the books, man, Holmes spent like years and years just doing tons and tons of experiments to try to understand how these things work. So like, you got to give me some legwork if you want to figure this stuff out. Right. (laughs) That is the cool thing about Sherlock Holmes. He's working at a time when these things aren't, he's supposed to be working at a time when he's discovering how things work. Oh, absolutely. Which is kind of what's cool about him. You know, it's it's, it's not just what he notices and deduces. He's doing the experimentation to figure out what these things mean. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, how interesting of a character would Sherlock Holmes be? He walks into a room and he's like, aha, I have it. Okay, I see a book that's out of place. And in this book, before he opens it, he goes, there's a key in here and there's a key in there. You'd be like, wow, are you like weirdly psychic? Like, how are you doing that? Like, To be fair, there have been so many Sherlock Holmes that some of them absolutely have played him that way. And some, some. Tell you the truth, most of the times what happens is you have all of these observations, but they don't ex- immediately lead to an answer. They are just a torrent, a tidal wave of sensory information coming out, making deductions on, 
And then over the course of the book, or if you're watching a show, the hour or whatever, uh, he'll he'll tease it out by the end, you know. Yeah, that's how, and that's how Arthur Conan Doyle wrote those. That's how the books work. Yeah, I yeah. would argue the Guy Ritchie ones, the ones that start Robert Downey Jr. There's an awful lot of I glance at something and figure out this entire situation. Oh well, that's a whole and next, execute yeah, and get you, rid of it. That's the thing. You you're not allowed to play that. You literally cannot play that character in D and D because it breaks all mechanics. Because like the the fight scenes alone where he figures out the angles and stuff, which are phenomenal. But, like, you can't do that, or else, like, you literally are a one-man killing machine, you know? But, yeah, super awesome. What if if a player comes in and says, I want to play this character? Because he is an awesome character. Yeah, no, but you you know what I mean, though, like, mechanically speaking. But those that was really cool. If they could figure out that mechanic to make intelligence matter in terms of a fighting martial class, that would be super fun. That would be super fun. That's a total aside, but... Continue. Interesting. Could be done. Could definitely be done. So, all right, we've been talking. I think we have answered the uh, the question that was presented to us. So let's get into the other side of this, which is you know, what are some character builds or character features, maybe, maybe not entire builds or just quirks of the way players played that, yeah, you know, got under your skin a bit and kind of pissed you off. Well, this isn't necessarily a build, but this is an abil- this is a spell that uh, really made me look at. It. it was used for my party, and I said, what? So we were in the Demlich stronghold, and he had a iron golem there. Dave's like, "Aha! Make Boom. charisma saving throw!" And he's like, "What? What do you mean charisma? Gone!" <laughs> I'm like, "What did that look like?" You're like, "Hey, persuade me in 15 words or less not to banish you." And he's like, "Um, um, I'm a nice guy." You're like, "Eat it, sucker!" Boom, and you're gone. That's how that went. Charisma? What? Well, what? So first, first of all, I totally agree with Tony on this. We'll get to that in a second. How charisma works now, though, is charisma is now your force of personality and willpower stat. You willed him away, and he could not. He did not have the charisma to will himself to fight you. Yeah. Willpower in earlier editions I was on wisdom. Likeable. <laughs> They've moved willpower off of wisdom into charisma, which I it took me a while to get it to wrap my head around, but I kind of get it. It's your willpower. It's your confidence. You tell him to leave, and he just doesn't have the balls to say no. It's kind of what they don't really like. The comeliness factor is not really a thing for the charisma stat anymore like it was back in the day. It is just that that force of will and personality and and things like that. But, yeah. Actually, if you're a Lucifer reader, Lucifer, the the comic book, he does – there's situations of that where he says – where someone says your spell didn't work. He's like, no, it's going to work. He doesn't have the willpower to resist me. He just forces it through. That's a charisma caster. Now, granted, he is literally the devil, so maybe it's a little different. But he certainly plays like a sorcerer. And exactly, yes, sorcerers, bards, there's a few people who have that coveted charisma safe bonus, but not a lot of people. Really yeah. not a lot. And this is once, this isn't the whole build, and Dave knows this because we've talked about this. I have not banned any spells. No. Spells that force bad guys to run away, or even now banishment being even worse, that just force them to out of the fucking plane are so frustrating. Because it's like, okay, here's the big centerpiece of the battle. Boom, he's gone. So now I've got to double centerpiece everything. Or I've got to overload everything. And we're already dealing with the combat taking too long. Now, granted, this does make combat take less time. But it's not like you snuck around the dude. It's like it's just you save or suck. Okay, you suck. Get out of here. The force of my god brought him away from this plane of existence. The power of Christ compels you. You literally... When banishment works, which it works easier now because as you get higher level right those dcs get pretty rough yeah. and something like a golem yep 
probably not the highest charisma save in the whole world. Am I going to throw that on like the Lich or the Malbion? Yeah, probably not. I don't think I'm going to waste that spell slot because how about fuck you? Like I'm not going anywhere, right? Because legendary saves, right? Legendary resistance. But yeah, yeah but when it works, it it works. It is a it's an ender. But then we saw what happened during that fight, which was the Demi Lich being an incredibly intelligent uh, foe understands what just occurred and said, okay, fine, make me a con save, make me a con save, make me a con save, make me, and I just got blasted, changed the way in the, the dynamics of the party where they started to try to protect me. And I had to, I had to start making decisions to hold that banishment. So it still affected the gameplay and kept it going. I do understand on the DM side though, things like that, that can be, um, you, you're say, for the same way you don't like dissonant whispers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Distant Whispers, I wound up, as I played it through it a couple times, I wound up finding, well, you know what, this isn't a bad thing. He takes a bunch of opportunity attacks, but now he also gets to reset and come back at you, which is usually a combat advantage. Because you tend to use Distant Whispers when he's already surrounded. So the bad guy's already in trouble. Oh, he runs away and takes some OAs, and now he comes back, but now he can control the fight a little better. Banishment doesn't let you do that. And Banishment's also, the first time you used Banishment, actually, was against the first Hydra I tried to throw you guys in front of. Yeah, because there was a, we were you guys were in a um, we're, we're going through an underground cavern and I wanted to have a Hydra fight there. And then the Hydra appears and boom, banishment gone. Now, that wasn't so frustrating then, but it is like, yeah, man, it's it's uh, you kind of can't have the fights you want to have if if, you know, with the big dumb monsters, if the big dumb monsters can just be sent to go play somewhere else. And I actually, I haven't really found the solution because I haven't wanted to ban these things, you know, because, you know, me and Tony kind of differ on these. I don't know if Tony would ban it, but we had the issue with like the monk in the stun, which in some ways could be the same problem. It's like, what do you do with this with this spell that kind of ruins your encounter if it hits? And in some encounters, you don't mind. You know, you don't always mind the, the players getting the easy win. In other encounters, you're like that. Like, this is just BS. <laughs> this is just bullshit. What the fuck just happened there? And you know, what, you know, I, I have not found a good solution other than to just eat it. I don't know, Tony, mm-hmm. what do you think? How would you handle this? You haven't seen, I don't think it's come up in your games yet. No, I have not had a lot of charisma defense situations. Because to be fair, these things are rare. But I got to say, Thorne, not off the hooks. Another thing that grinds my gears is the rod of a pack keeper. What a people who are like five E doesn't have good items aren't looking at that. What does? Yeah, yeah, my God. Oh, let's just add like two or three to your DC. Boy, the wizard's looking at that like slobbering. Boy, I wish I could have that. What it is? It's it can be a plus one. Like Phineas has a plus one. In fact, I believe isn't it just plus one or does it go plus two and plus three? Mm -hmm. It does go up. It it can be higher. Yeah, you can no, go yeah. one, two, three. Yeah, easily. But, but yeah, a plus three rod of the pack. You don't be giving that out until later. My God, dude, that'll just be fucking. Oh my well, do God. you remember what I said? Remember what I said to no, Dave sure. when he gave it to Phineas? I'm like, really? You're giving me a rod of the pack keeper? Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you won't regret this at all. But actually, I didn't throw that many saver suck spells out with him, and I don't think it really made that much difference. Like, because I did. I yeah, I mean, because banishment. With you him. don't. The ones you picked were not in the same level of something like a banishment, where it's just like if you don't save this, you're gone until the spell ends for whatever reason, right? Yeah, so, and I'll tell you why. I actually dislike saver suck spells as a person. Like, not just as a DM, I think that's a really shit mechanic. So we had this conversation last week, too, when we talked about Polymorph in the one fight we had. But Polymorph's a little different, because, okay, this thing becomes this little animal. But you know what? If you kill that little animal or it kills itself, you've got your monster back. It comes back. So, 
So now the party has to figure out how do we keep this thing from dying? Because once it dies, it comes back as the full monster. So that's a little more, in- there's, there's, there's an interesting thing then the party has to figure out. Banishment is just, Pop, you go away and we run by you. And I just, I like banishment as a way to get rid of potentially extra planner things. I think that makes sense in theme. The way it's open right now, I honestly, I gotta tell you, I think it's shit design. That's a really poorly designed spell. Just if you don't save, this monster just disappears for the length of the fight. God, I don't, I don't. Well, no, no, that's a, that's a constant. That's a constant thing though, because that is a concentration spell. Mm -hmm. So every time I take damage, I am having to make that concentration check, that con save, or it it ends. It can be. Then hence, that's true. I, that's hence, why I, oh, hence why you targeted a beam yeah. for the rest of that fight because of that reason, which makes something like the Warcaster feat such a, a wonderful yeah. thing for spellcasters because – Wow, that advantage really helps in those situations. But it also, like, you know, it gets back to that. It's the you can't now have you can't have single monster fights unless they're legendary monsters because they, if they don't have legendary resistance, what do you do? The fight just ended. Sure. I just I I get you. There is a way out. The way out is you attack the spellcaster. It didn't work in this case because I had all fire attacks and beam is resistant to fire. Fine. Yeah, you know, it works out. I get that. I just don't think it's a good spell. Honestly, like that kind of thing. That's just if you don't save this guy's out of the battle. Yeah, I just I don't know. I mean, Tony, do do you you agree with that? This is an argument I made about seventy episodes ago about something, and I can't put my finger (laughs) on what that was. Stun's stun is one turn. Stun, you have to keep doing it. This is like just this is one and done. Yeah, there is is a difference between the two, definitely. But it's one thing. Also limited by chi. You only have so many chi points. We're getting a little nitty gritty here because that's a spell, right? That's not a build. That's not a whole character. Because, for instance, like with Beam, the cleric, I have banishment. I usually am keeping it prepared to some level as we go on because I never know. But I've used it sparingly for very specific reasons because it's not always what I want to try to throw out. You know, there are some people I'm not – I was not going to attempt to banish the fucking Demi-Lich or even the Flame Skulls necessarily, but the Golem, all right, well, this thing is serious. Let me try this. Boom. You know, so you attack the person's weaknesses, but it's not something like like a monk stun that's being used every single fight either. So, well, the problem is, though, it wipes out wipes out a whole class of encounter. Mm hmm. You, you know, you can't have the giant dumb monster show up and expect him to be able to touch the party because he's probably going to get banished. So so that's the thing, Like, which is does kind of get to the argument Tony made about stun, because it does. It wipes out something you want to do. We've already talked about fifth edition doesn't really favor this solo monster encounter. However, we've also talked about how the more you add monsters to your counter, the longer it goes. <laughs> so not having these solo monster encounters is kind of feeding this problem of you can't just have the one Hydra pop up up against the party with banishment uh what would uh phineas's dc be if he had a uh, rod of the pack keeper three plus three i believe phineas's final dc was a 19 so mm-hmm. i guess 22 it'd be a 19 20... is still pretty still pretty tough though i mean also you gotta keep in mind dave let us go up to 22s on uh some of our stats so he has a plus six from that yeah i mean it, but at the same time drod saved against him you know, people still make the saves against them. It just depends on who you're fighting. So like, he, it's not a, not a, also, I didn't play them that way. I kind of went, I liked playing, I really liked things more like lock the door and throw them in there with the, uh, hunger with, 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 with the sickening, yeah, hunger of Hadar, the sickening radiance. I prefer it out smart. I, I prefer that we've maneuvered them into a point where they're just going to die now. Yeah, you know, we've done the work <laughs> for that. I like that one better than the saber suck. 
Fair enough. You're you're flying monk bird. I won't be, you know drag him back to this. He that guy drew a lot of hate. I but normal hate, and that wasn't there. And I don't want to revisit that too deeply. But <laughs> my God, like the hated character of of the campaign, they're gonna be like that fucking bird. Okay, so R. Kang is a uh, Arakokra monk with a warlock. lot of stun, with with a level in warlock that he got kind of for free because because he's you know, part of uh, the God Anathwas crew, and he can summon the wall the, the basically the tentacles of God Anathwa to try to take sacrifices. Yeah, people didn't like him, but that's an NPC, you know. Although on the one hand, yeah, maybe you know the way those we we've talked about that fight. On the other hand, as a player character, I don't know if he would have been that annoying. Might be. Really depends how you feel about stun. You got you slid in there, gave all your party members wedgies, like pulled their shirts over their heads and like tied their shoes together and left. That is like, not ah! what I intended to do. He was a <laughs> I, I sent him in there as a flying pinata full of magic items for the party. Every he had something something for everyone if they just killed him. It just didn't work out that way. <laughs> but his build build wise though, it was that combat and, and yeah, that's true. Build wise it was that combination of his ability to attack easily, his ability to not get hit, and his ability to stun. So. so what about you? So, Dave, what builds piss you off? Uh, well, as I said earlier, too, I I appreciate the, uh, the tongue-in-cheekness of the piss me off. They don't necessarily piss me off as much. Uh, there are definitely builds that have challenged me and made me go, whoa, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? The first one was the Circle of the Moon Druid, which... Chris very well might have to deal with now because Bonnie with the uh, her druid character in our newest Tomb of Annihilation campaign is uh, she's thinking she might Circle of the Moon is one of the top ones that she's thinking of taking when she takes her circle for because uh, uh, they take it to level two. Uh, yep. They don't have to wait till three for yep. like like a lot of our cool stuff. Um, so we'll Circle of the Moon is that's a tough one because at such a low level that you get this mass just explosion of not only damage output, but hit point uh, padding uh, makes it tough. As we saw with Hannibal, he was a druid that became the the tank of the party in a party with some tanks, you know? Well, you are. I mean, and I will say I loved playing that character. Like that is one of the most fun builds I've put together. But there was that point when at second level, I, I think at third level, I multiclassed into Barbarian. So I took half damage. Yeah. And I totally see what you mean. The, what I would hope would be the saving grace is it's just damage. Like you can always throw more damage in the mix to, oh, to, yeah. to try to challenge that. But it was more the, um, I think that was more because it was that low, it was low level. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff. So again, it wasn't one that pissed me off, but it's one that made me go, all right, I don't really know where to go with this person other than just targeting them the whole time. And then you run into the problems we've talked about where you start to either make certain things too difficult to challenge that player or they're the ones that are just doing everything in terms of combat or something like that. But it didn't turn into that. So regardless, I would that say was the top one. The with the Circle of the one, Moon Druid, I would say yeah. as that player, I would never complain about you focusing fire on him at low levels. Simply or because I turned into a giant bear or a giant wolf. Like, a dire who wolf. else yeah. are they going to be afraid of? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, and you never you never came and you were, you, were, you wanted uh, some fire focus because you would jump right into the center of the action, right? He was uh, a very antisocial one, character. <laughs> the second <laughs> one that I think is, I, I just think it's like if anything in terms of subclasses is broken, the totem path of the bear barbarian 
is so fucking broken. The idea that you take half damage from every single piece of attack except psychic damage is literally ludicrous and becomes even more so when you're 10th, 11th, 12th, 15th level. You have 200 hit points and you're taking half damage to everything. Nothing takes half damage to everything. I don't even think a Tarrasque takes half damage to everything, you know? So that's, uh, so Hawk is, he is literally unkillable, unkillable. I don't really have a defense to that. Which is not, again, so that's not something that pisses me off, but it's like, you don't necessarily know, you hope that the, the player is interested in the story. You hope that the character gets to do interesting things and stuff, but it's like that, okay, well, this person is just, they're just immortal. You, they're just not going to go down. Other people will go down. This person will always live to tell the tale, you know? <laughs> Either that or you have to, if you have a, a totem, uh, Path of the Bear, you have to, I guess, have a, just, I think you have to have a Mind Flayer campaign. Like, that's the only, like, you just, it has to only be an Illithid ship. You have to be on a... Yeah, you bring, like, flint, you bring out the flint with that pain flail. Yeah, it's gnolls and mind flares. That's <laughs> that's it's a strange team up. I don't know, but those are the two that come to mind first. That are really they are a challenge to work with in the party in certain circumstances. What I find hilarious about that is if you read all these guides, and I've read about five different barbarian guides. No, no kidding, guys. The totem warrior, the guys are like, uh. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, <laughs> like, sure, you have literal on the battlefield immortality, but look at this other class. I mean, this aura of heat. Ah, that's pretty cool. Well, look, <laughs> this guy gets to have a spirit friend. Like, I mean, yeah, but you, that guy will never die. Like, death <laughs> can't kill him. He's resistant to death. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, and you start looking at some of the barbarian abilities, they're preposterous, like where you get advantage on deck saving throws and advantage on a, initiative, like they really rolled up the red carpet for that class. They're no, hard no to play. kill. That's kind of the point of the class. It is hard yeah. to kill a barbarian. I mean, that is the yeah. point of the class, though, too. So, you know, again. It's but more- I will say that I think the secret to the, all this is, because some of the the, the other players in, my cam- in that campaign have really off-the-chart damage abilities, and the secret to that is that combat is going to be has to be one facet of the game. So, like, if we're playing Game of Thrones, yes, you absolutely, if you get in that one-on-one duel, you are going to own that situation. If there's going to be that situation, that that battle scenario, you're going to be you you have that advantage. But if you have to build alliances, if you need to figure things out, if you need to explore and cover ground and accomplish goals and bring people together, these are all different assets. And that's the weakness of the barbarian. He's they're good at kicking ass, but that's it. Oh, you're a pretty charismatic barbarian, as I remember. I think you could have walked in there and wooed some princesses. Working on it. Yeah, well, I mean, he's a performer. I mean, he's a performer first, right? Ah, uh, yeah. Try to think. Yeah, it, I do think it's funny because 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 really they sound like the problem you had. Like it's mostly the the when you can't like the damage. Just throwing enough damage in the game to to kind of overcome these guys who can take half damage and have and have extra kind of hit point pools. And that's what I'm saying. And that's where I think it was not something that pissed me off, but something that really made me have to start to think about my encounter building. And also 
to break myself a little bit too, because we've talked about this, and a lot of times I think DMs get into this idea of challenge means death. Challenge means knocking players down. And that's not always the sometimes that that is a part of the equation, but it's not the whole equation. You know, there are there are multiple facets to the game. As we've discussed, and I've been uh I've been really investigating during this entire podcast. You know, really figuring out the equations of what does challenge mean in the game. But yeah, in the, especially the early days, that was one of the uh, that was the first game I ever ran you in, Thorin. Yeah. Uh, when you brought the Circle of the Moon, so it was just, and it was everyone was second level at that time, and yours was is ahead above the rest in the beginning. Something yeah. like the Circle of the Moon evens out. Uh, as you begin to level up, but we were still pretty low level that time. So it was just more of a dealing with that dichotomy. Like I say, with Hawk too, it, there's a, definitely a dichotomy of Hawk and the other party members in terms of what's going to happen in combat, you know? Yeah. And one, one thing, and if you are DMing a circle, of the moon druid, one thing you got to keep in mind is their power growth is at a weird kind of like it pops every three levels when they get access to new creatures and it almost pops the most at level two or like when, when they like, it's almost at the highest when they first get new creatures because you get so much more stuff than everyone else has. But then for a little while, you don't really expand much like, cause you don't get new creatures to work with for like three levels. Yeah. So it's well, like, like 200% above a normal Druid right off the bat. Cause I think you're capped at a quarter CR uh, when you first get wild shape, but the moon druid allows you to go to CR one right off the top. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a big jump, but then, like you said, then it kind of, you have to kind of work at building that up and it only hits only so high. There's yeah, a I think point where that becomes not as, I think it's, you know, isn't that like one third your level basically, or something like that. Or, uh, there, there's, there's a calculation like that, but basically what it means is that he pops up every three levels in power, but then kind of plateaus in between. So you kind of like around like level five, he's usually not the coolest character. And then he gets access to new creatures at like level six or something. Yeah. And then yeah. he gets, and then he gets another jump up. So and it's kind of like a, ones uh, and things like that. Yeah. And I would argue, I would argue most of them aren't as big a jump as the first couple because you stop running into things that are just massive hit point pulls. But yeah. Do, beasts top out. Like we saw yeah. with polymorph too. Like you hit a point where, well, this is about as as high as I can go, and after certain levels, that doesn't become as advantageous. Yeah, like the T-Rex is cool and all, but we all passed off Polymorph eventually. Yeah, exactly. We, we, yeah. yeah, it's still in the, it's still in the hopper if I ever need to really <laughs> something. But yeah, like it's not my first go-to. Like when I first got it, you know. All the spellcasters played Grape Ape once, and then they're like, yeah, okay, I'll pass. I'll, I'll swap this out for the next level. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I'm, you know, it's funny for me. I don't know if I would say I have any builds that piss me off. Although, for those of us who played 4th edition, the Orb Wizard. Oh, an honorable mention. Yeah, no, that deserves a mention. Because the Orb Wizard in 4th edition had the ability to basically lock people where they couldn't make their saves. So you could come in and hit, like, the baddest thing on the other team and lock it down with whatever you were hitting it with, sleep or whatever, and lock it, like hard lock it. There's a very few hard locks in uh, in, in D&D 5th edition. You could hard lock them where they could not wake back up. You know what that's making me think of? 
just real quick. I, we ha- none of us have played with it yet. I don't think in five E, but this divination wizard. Yeah, I've heard this sounds thing. like one that might be a bit of a challenge at like the first time you encounter it. From what I've read of it, it seems because uh, they get baller. <laughs> I think they, so. One of the things they get is they get to they get to make like three divination rolls at the start of the game, and whenever those numbers come up, they can just hand someone that die. Here's what you rolled this time. And it can be used for your party. If you roll a 20, it could be an attack roll for your party. If you roll a 1, that could be a saving throw for an enemy. The inti- yeah. yeah, the enemy too. Oh, wait, so, never mind. <laughs> I banish you and don't bother to roll. You roll a 1 on your saving throw. Goodbye. Seems fair. <laughs> <laughs> the mists foretold it. <laughs> Madam so, Eva! It sounds cool, though. Like it's, That's one of the ones I'm like, oh, that might be kind of cool to to play like i would like to see how it plays out but you know it's one of those ones i don't know if it would be cool past a few levels like that was the problem with the orb wizard the orb wizard was really neat at first because you were just super powerful but then it's like okay so i come in i do the thing i lock them down and i just follow my nails for a while you know it's like you kind of it's cool but constantly locking down does get to be a little tiresome like i was saying earlier too that kind of goes dovetails back to our earlier conversation with sherlock holmes yeah. After a while, doing the thing is fun, but at some point you want to do another thing. So sometimes if it's always, you know, if it just becomes easy, then it kind of becomes boring too. I do wonder about the coffee lock. About oh, the geez. about the infinite yeah. spell. Because I, I mean, that would be kind of neat walking around with infinite spells. Like, just what would you do? Like, no one else gets that. Just <laughs> I just get to cast everything. No Here's all the things. level. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it is you are limited to sorcerer and warlock. You wouldn't have wizard spells. I don't. Maybe there is a way to get wizard spells. That'd be that'd be even more interesting. Uh, yeah, there is. You could uh, take the magic initiate feat, and, and then you can learn some wizard spells, or take the ritual caster. But then that's rituals only, so that yeah, I don't think that works. that doesn't play the same way. But nah, magic initiate would. Yeah, I that that sounds like it would be fun, even though it would be very annoying to DM. But at the same time, <laughs> don't you want to see what it's like to have a player walk around with just literally infinite power? Just what do you do when you have the whole spell book open all the time? How do we I, mean, I think it would just be power word kills. Every enemy would seem to have this power word kill ray. <laughs> <laughs> power power word, word kill. You know, the, when the bard says, hey, do you in the back heckling us? We hate you. Please die. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I haven't, I haven't I don't think I've run into a lot of builds I necessarily hate in fifth edition. I do DM a, a little bit around the big beefy paladin. So the Woodstock Wanderers has a paladin and has a and has a barbarian, and you do find that sometimes attacking them is a waste of your time. But at the same time, you do need to engage them and you want them to be fighting something. But like it winds up not being the crux of the battle because if it is, they're just going to grind. Like they're just going to grind out whatever you have. Like they're just going to hold it there, and everyone else is going to hit it with, with with ranged attacks. So you let that happen every now and then. But I play around that a little bit because I do try to challenge the back row and not let anyone get too comfortable on the battlefield. We have talked about, you know, I'm not a big fan of the saver sucks spell, so I do worry about the divination wizard. And that would need to be a whole different kind of game, I think, if you're playing with that kind of thing, where like. You just everyone just snap your fingers and okay, they're put to sleep or they're banished or they're whatever else you want to do to them. You know, mm. that's that's a different kind of game. Could be interesting though. I don't know if I would hate it. What about you guys? You guys have played with me. And anything you think that I get overly annoyed at that I'm not thinking of? I've got a pretty good shotgun burst of things that grind the gears. <laughs> 
things that grind my I think that the biggest thing is the saver sucks stuff. Oh, you know what actually can be a little tricky is dealing with with the super stealthy thief because that winds up and you kind of just got to get used to it. I wouldn't say it pisses me off or anything, but I had to get used to look, the thief is just going to disappear when they want to. And you're not yeah. going to be able to see them to hit. Yeah, them. they're going to hide. They're going to hide. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually very much like what this, like what the initial message talked about with the Perception 19, Investigation 22. They're just going to notice it. Well, your thief is just going to go invisible. Yeah, like but guess be- what? Your uh, Sherlock Holmes ain't going to notice that thief that just went and hid because they just rolled a 27. <laughs> happens all the time. In a cardboard box. God. I don't know. And also, so you you build up like Thea, our rogue and Woodstock Wanderers, when they get things like reliable talent. Where yeah. now you can't roll under what is it, ten or twelve on something, something like that. You well, I think basically yeah, it means you can't roll under a ten, but then you add your your bonuses You're, to it. So, you so can't, nothing's you ever weaker yeah, than passive. You literally cannot see them, and then add on like a, a cloak of elven kind and things like that, and like bye. I gave her, you know, bye. we knew. Bye. You're gone. You're gone. Bye bye. I knew what I was getting into, and it's almost like, but that's actually a good typecase for this for this issue we talked about because you know, if you read them talk about the way they built Rogue, they intend the Rogue to get sneak attack almost every turn. So if you're going out of your way to prevent your Rogue from getting sneak attacks, you're really not letting them play the character they chose. Mm. So you have to allow it. Like it, you you allow it's the wrong word. You've got to let it play out the way it plays out. Now, there are have been some times when I've had like someone in a tree with Thea trying to track her down and she's hidden. But if they get line of sight on her, they're going to see her. And yeah. some of those have been very tense and actually kind of cool I think, because it's like they know the shot came from this tree, but they don't know where that person went and she's still in the tree. So now you have this little game of he moves here, she moves there, and she still usually doesn't get seen. But this but is it, also it's also a really good example of someone role playing this in a way that is. Uh, helpful, I think, to the game mechanics and to the role play and the story because Thea doesn't more recently has decided to, but up into for a good 12 levels or so, was not wanting to go forward and scout out and use all of that stealth <laughs> to like, you know, like find this stuff. So it was just like, oh no, I just hide because I don't like you people really and I don't want to get hit, you know? So Again, it wasn't a way to try to break the game or ruin the game. It was a way like this is the way my character is. You know, they're just really good at hiding. But but it and it, it, and, it and that's absolutely true, actually. And and I think, you know, the way she's played the character has been great. I have no, no complaints about it, but it took some getting used to. Like there were definitely times I'm like, I should be able to see you. Right. I don't see how. No. Nope. Uh, yeah. But hiding behind in plain sight. You just you're motionless. You can't you can't see me now. And to be fair, I did give her the the cloak of Elvenkind. I didn't know what I was getting into. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think Jang sometimes, Jang's reach and ability to lock people down seem to grind your gears a bit, Tony. Mm, I don't know. He wasn't dropping 70 points of damage on any given normal attack. Like <laughs> that. No, uh, Tony was more uh, bothered, I think, by some of the, like, the superiority dice and using the intimidation and the fear stuff. That was... What, the, like, because that would take people out of the fight for him constantly, you know. Well, yeah, it no, would keep them from moving forward. That was all. It would it would keep them from moving forward and give them disadvantage on attacks. Yeah. Which is a big deal in the battle. It's like you had the yellow lantern of power there, as everyone feared your the might of your uh, <laughs> the parallax. Your uh, yeah, exactly of your uh, noted she there. That that was tough to get around. Monsters will botch saving throws. It'll happen. There's just yeah. no way around it. I mean. 
Oh, yeah, here you go. How's your wisdom save? Well, we're in Storm King's Thunder, and these giants aren't a lot of deep thinkers. I mean, <laughs> saving throws were missed. So, Tone, in that way, I don't think it was at all. You've never given that sign, but it's a. I think it's a good example because somebody like Roderick, who was like the, the ultimate skill monkey guy, I mean, I don't even know what I ended with my bonus on my persuasion. But, I mean, my persuasion was literally unstoppable to a point. Like, I couldn't roll under, I think, a 13 or a 14, no matter what. But did you feel as though that we played that in a way that it ruined, not ruined the game, but you know what I mean? But that gave undue, I thought you played with that well, is what I'm trying to say. And what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I mean. As I, as I mumble my way through my fucking question. We thought you dealt with our bullshit okay. There you go. Actually, yeah, that that's a the, good one. Yeah, that, that was the beginning of what caused my DMing style to adapt. I think that really took a much stronger turn when I began doing a solo campaign for my girlfriend. But that was really like the primordial foundation of it, where it's like, well, okay, let's start opening up other ways to handle things. And in a lot of these situations, it's like, I mean, and honestly, and I've said this before, traditionally in D&D, how do we handle problems? We run up there with our powerful armor and our swords, and the warriors use their great combat abilities to solve problems. Wizards use their great spell casting ability to solve problems. Clerics use their amazing healing abilities so the warriors can fight to solve problems, and the thieves deliver those killer sneak attacks. That's how we solve problems, by killing the shit in front of us. Yeah. And not here. And that added a very nice dimension to it. Which I thought that's how it kind of played out as well, um, because there were times where our diplomacy wasn't going to work, but other times where you would say, all right, yeah, th give me a persuasion, and I'd be like, 31. And you'd be like, <laughs> okay, so I think we're probably going to have to have you talk your way through this. Let's go with that. As a warrior in that campaign, it never bothered me. Like, I thought it was very appropriate, and I liked the way it played out a lot of the times. So and I'm playing, I was playing the not super charismatic attack dude. You know? No, because you would play into it as being like the big burly muscle guy behind, be cracking yeah. your knuckles. You know? <laughs> like, do you want to deal with me, or you're gonna have to deal with him? Tapping, tapping, tap, tapping the on the ground. You know, yeah, exactly. punctuating what you had to say. So, if I could do something different, looking back upon all that, I would have encouraged more people to be involved in that conversation, based mm. on the quality of the content of what they were saying. Versus just like you have nothing good to add because your die rolls will not be there. Now, if you really want to go against something strong, like when you were in the, the court with the storm giants and you were trying to make that those final points and you were going against the grain of uh, someone was in opposition with you, that's when you need the, the pivotal role. But you can't overuse that or you will push everybody else out of the conversation. Like, OK, I'm not going to open my mouth. I open my mouth and we're all going to be in the dungeon. Yep. Gonna yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is a way around that, which is to let them basically add advantage if what they say is good. Or if you still want them to roll something, let them roll to add the advantage. Although, I, mm. honestly, I personally prefer it. Like, if I'm playing a character that's not that clever and I, and I have a good argument and I make a point, I would like that to just be a straight advantage to the person who's going to make the roll. But I think that's another way to handle that, to let people contribute and still influence the role, but you're not making the role with the person with a two persuasion. Yeah, if we're not encouraging clever ideas at the table, then what the hell are we doing as DMs? Yeah. That's a great point. 
Absolutely. Yeah, or even it just occurred to me too, like just as a way to make it even kind of fun, because I know we we've talked about that a lot, especially with like Zhang and his not a lot of charisma. But then like, well, now I'm completely out of a third of what's happening at the table, right? What if like something like that, either uh, advantage or you get to roll an inspiration die of some magnitude, you know, a D6, a D8, Ooh, a D12, you know, something like roll a D10 for me. Okay, now add that to your persuasion roll kind of thing or something. I don't know. That was just a little I, brainstorm. I, I will go to my grave saying that Zhang should be intimidating based upon his appearance, his strength. We talked a lot about that. My, his to my grave was not bad. Like, it wasn't bad on the sheet, but it was, like, compared to, like, what Roderick could say. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, Zhang could be big and intimidating. Roderick would come up there and just imply what he's going to do to you and make the guy piss himself. Well, look, I am playing, uh, if I'm nothing, if not inconsistent, because Roderick <laughs> had his 20 charisma Right. And he was persuasive and noble and eloquent. And now I'm playing Roosevelt the Gif, who has a seven charisma. So, you know. He has his charm, though. There you go. Yeah. Big Bixie in that game has, I believe, an eight charisma. Oh, my God. It might be a seven. So, no, oh yeah, no, he's got. He actually has. He has negatives on charisma rolls. He and, and you guys are the two most likable people in the I campaign. Minus, I, I'm rolling on a minus two with my charisma. It's <laughs> it's awesome. It's well, awesome. we're likable because we're buffoons. Basically, yeah. we're yeah. playing buffoons, so yeah. we're likable. But you know, don't ask us to convince we're like, the police to let us go. We're like if non-human people played in the movie Twins. <laughs> sort of maybe yeah yeah, like, yeah i feel like like Roosevelt analogy, is actually. like the schwarzenegger one and bixie is danny devito that's i mean that's <laughs> how i'm envisioning it we have the suits right with the tropical shirts yeah so it's you know it's, it's like it's like the marx brothers on expedition there yeah yeah harpo you know we've been going on about this for a little while so why don't we get to some final thoughts and what are you know especially what are your thoughts, your final thoughts, your final takeaways on dealing with the characters that piss you off? Well, I would hit this in session zero. I would kind of throw out that this is how investigations work. You're just not going to be able to come into a room and be all-knowing because you have a secret camera planted on top of the chandelier. And you're looking down and you can see behind the bookshelf. Even if there's no reason why you'd know there's a door behind the bookshelf unless you really got over there and checked and then looked for legitimate clues. I would want a character to, you know, they, you, I keep saying this, you bought the ticket, you, I'd let them play. Just because a character causes you some agita doesn't mean you shouldn't <laughs> let them run with it. Like, did I like, honestly, there's points where Sarkaloth, the Titan, almost got scared by Zhang because this, this monster with 456 hit points is getting poked by this, this bugbear to him is the size of like a Dixie cup. But that was his build and... To squash that, uh, it's not a good practice. Honestly. If a wasp threatens to sting you on the testicles, you're going to be frightened. Right? It's just, it's not good. So I, I would run with that, but I'd lay out how it is going to work in the beginning and then the buyer beware. Yeah. Back to the original question. I will say again, pass, read up a little bit. Uh, these are great times to go into the PHB and your Dungeon Master's Guide. And then also, we've talked about it on the show a lot of times, but Sage Advice is a great column that Jeremy Crawford does too. He takes these questions to to work out all of the weird 
iterations of when you put things down in words. People are going to interpret them in weird ways. So, you know, it doesn't mean that's the what you have to do, but it is a nice way to know if these are the rules, if you want to play by the rules, this is how it's being interpreted, whatever. Passive perception, again, is a tool for the dungeon master, not for the player. It is shorthand to allow what has to happen behind the screen to have game flow, and it's a way to have it be quicker. That's really all it is. Doesn't mean you don't play into it for people that have that uh, and people who are investigators and they want to build that. That's awesome. But, you know, make it be part, make it fun, make it be part of the role play. What are they doing? Why are they doing these things? Ask the, give them these prep questions when they're going into the room and they're searching things. You know, well, what are you looking for? Where are you looking? That type of stuff. And then give them they're just rewards for, as Thorne has said, spending resources to get this kind of stuff. In terms of builds that piss me off or spells that piss me off, again, they don't piss me off, but they definitely will challenge me at times. At times, they can be frustrating uh, where you you want to be able to play up certain aspects of the game and this certain thing limits that. Okay, cool. That's part of it. None of the players are being bothered by that. Um so run with it and let it increase and, and improve your skills at the table at running games. Because until you're challenged by these things, you're not going to know how to deal with them and how they're going to elevate your game. Like Tony was just saying, where me alone completely evolved his DM style after 20 plus years by bringing such a amazing, well-crafted, genius character like Roderick completely changed. But no, that was a good, I thought that would thank you. And I think that was really great is that that shows that Tony said, Oh, this is something I haven't really seen. And I like it. I want to take this to improve how I'm, how I'm running my games. So anyway, there you go. All right. Well said. You know, for me, my biggest my biggest piece of advice when dealing with characters that piss you off is to remember that if you're just going to have the story and tell it exactly how you want and have the characters do exactly what you want, that's not called role playing. That's called writing a novel. Yeah. You, and, and that's hard. That's yeah. hard. <laughs> well, <laughs> Dave would know. I believe he's working on one. <laughs> but you know, you're when you're being a DM, you're engaging in something that's collaborative, and you got to buy into the collaboration, and that works both ways. You need the players to meet you where you want to play the game and to be willing to play the game you want to play, which you should also be setting up in the, in as Tony mentioned, session zero, but you're also going to need to embrace the characters they're bringing to the table because that's what they want to do. That's what they're bringing to the game. So if you have a character that is optimized to do these things, like have great perception and great investigation or like control the battlefield, like Jang or be very persuasive, like Roderick had been, these characters, they've invested that character build in being really great at that. And you should embrace that because that's part of a collaborative game. You know, you you should never say, well, this character is broken in this thing. So I'm going to try to freeze that out so it doesn't happen anymore. No, no, no. That should happen. The guy with high perception should notice a ton of things. He should notice more things than you would notice in a normal game because he brought someone with a normally high perception. Like you want to play into that. 
but there is at the same time, you know, you still need to set the ground rules for how does this work in your game? I think we went through that pretty much in depth throughout this, you know, just because you have the numbers doesn't necessarily make everything automatic, but it should mean you get a lot of that benefit for what you invested in. And I think that's embracing that is, I think the most important thing to take away from here. You know, it's funny. We, I, I actually suggested the idea that, you know, how do you handle characters that piss you off? And then I went back to think about the characters I'm playing with. And there are some spells and activities that can piss me off. None of the characters actually pisses me off, though. You know, yeah, some of them are hard to kill. Some of them are hard to see. Some of them, I don't always know what they're doing all the time or what they're trying to do. But that's not a problem. That's that's D&D. You know, embracing that and being collaborative with that is what makes this a great game. Just, you know, take it. And you know, Dave put this in a great way. Sometimes it's not that the character is broken or frustrating. It's just challenging you. So think about how do you meet the challenge? What else can you do to, to, to embrace what they do, but still make it an interesting game and not let it and not let it break your game? Because ultimately, what you're responsible for is having that game function and making sure everyone, including this player, has a good time. And I think, you know, Dave, I, I think, made some great points on that. And I think, you know, Tony, I've got to uh, shout you out there for the comment. You know, if we're not encouraging players to have great ideas and, 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 and take really cool actions, then what are we doing as DMs? Yeah. Well That's said. the truth. I'm into well that. Said. Dave inspired me of that, too. Uh, you're welcome earth you're welcome ah <laughs> uh, yes you know and i get to have this podcast every week with god's gift to dming oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, christ yeah it's a great time guys thank you Stop exactly. by. It's good talking to you oh. and thank you all for listening at home this has been another episode of three wise dms as i mentioned if you'd like to hear us cover anything you're having a problem with just drop it in our what's your problem field at three wise send us an email at three wise dms at gmail.com Post it to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we'll do our best to, to work the question into a show. We love answering reader questions, so we really appreciate it when you do. If you like what you're hearing, please smash that five-star rating button, leave us a good review, tell your friends. That all really helps us grow, and we appreciate anything you can do to help us like that. We've been growing by leaps and bounds, and it's really because of you. So thank you very much for the support you've shown us. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs.